Let's think more about Christ's love by turning to John 13, please. John 13. And we'll be reading, studying together, uh, verses 31 to 35. As you turn there, I want to thank you for the ways that you're already expressing love to one another. As things have been extra full around here of late, uh, last week was uh, the largest number of people we ever had here at one time. I think it was 510 or something like that. Um, I hope there's not somebody that works for the fire department here because I'm pretty sure we're only supposed to do like 380. Um, but what that it's forced is a lot of people to just give up some stuff that would be really convenient for them, like a close parking spot, or there's people watching in other rooms today to make more space in here. Um, it, takes, it takes love to, to care for people well, and I understand. We, we pray for other churches. We know that there's other churches preaching the gospel, and I'm grateful for that, and yet it seems that there's still not enough. There's not enough of that. Um, so it gets crowded here? Okay. Um, we love and serve till God gives us the opportunity to help relieve the pressure by planning a church somewhere else, which is what the meeting later is about. But the point is, I just want to thank you for showing that love. It would be easy to get ticked off and be like, well, I like space at the movie theater, and I want space when I sit here, you know, in the gathering on Sunday, and therefore I'm going elsewhere. Thanks for coming back. I'm glad you're here. John 13, uh, verses 31 to 35. Let me read it for us. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. beautiful memory pounced upon me this week as I was considering this text. It was of uh, my childhood every other Sunday when we would go to my uh, grandfather's house after church. The whole family, we all went to the same church. And every other Sunday we'd do a meal together. And while the, the ladies would be cooking the meal, the race would be on the TV. They were big NASCAR fans. And, uh, and everybody settled into their particular chairs. And, and as like a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old boy, like the tradition every Sunday I was over there was to actually crawl up into my grandfather's lap and he would be reading the Sunday paper, you know, the big one. And then when I would get in his lap, we would turn to the really important page the comics and puzzles. And he would sit there every Sunday, every time. 
Uh, we'd read through the comics, but my, my favorite part was the puzzles. Didn't do the crossword. That was a little too advanced. My favorite was the, can you spot the difference? You've ever seen those? Any kids in the room know what I'm talking about? The can you spot? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's so much fun. Like you're, you're looking at the two, and he could always see it. And I'd, there's normally five differences. I could get maybe three of them. Uh, and then he'd point out the others together. It was, it was loving. It was fun. Th- that is the, the environment that I'd like to set for us this morning as we look at this text. It, there really is a little bit of a, of a game going on, and I don't mean to downplay the Scriptures. I, I actually want to elevate them. But we're, we're coming across a really familiar text, and, and it would be easy for you to be like, oh yeah, I've, I've, I've seen this, I know this. But you need to ask the hard question. Can you spot the difference? Like this command just sounds like, oh yeah, I know this. This is all over the Bible. This is, this is everywhere. I was like, I mean, it's even in Leviticus, it talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. And here he is just saying, all right, just love people. But the strange thing about John 13, 31 to 35, is that Jesus says that it's a new commandment. What's so new about the new commandment? Because it sounds eerily like the rest of them. It'd be helpful to know that, for you to know, that the word new here in the Greek language doesn't speak to chronological newness it speaks to qualitative newness chronological newness means you know it's new in time like it's never shown up before Uh, a baby being born is chronologically new It, it does not have a timeline before it was actually born it its birthday starts then uh, a, a house that's being renovated or a car that's been restored, that's qualitative newness. That's the, that's the Greek word here. So we've got a new quality of the love command. Uh, what makes this so new? Why does this matter? Ultimately, friends, there is something special going on here, and if we just kind of throw it into the category of every other love command we see in the Bible, you're going to miss the point. I mean, contextually, like in, in this particular spot, it's called, like this area this, of the Bible is called the farewell discourse. John 15 to 17 is called the upper room discourse, but it's right at this very point that everybody says, hey, we're in a new territory here, and it's called the farewell discourse. And if you want to get the importance of that, you just think of any farewell discourse, like when a grandparent, for example, is about to die and they call the children and grandchildren into the room for a last speech. That's a farewell discourse. It's something really important. I'm about to be gone, and in my absence, there's some stuff that I want you to know. A farewell discourse can be as pedantic as a parent that's about to go on a business trip. It's not unusual for a dad, for example, to call the children around before he takes off for his flight and says, all right, uh, in my absence, here's some things that you need to do in the meantime. It's a farewell discourse. What takes place here, and you're going to see it over and over again in the next few weeks, is a farewell. Jesus is saying very clearly, I'm about to be gone. Things are now set in motion so that like, my most brilliant display of glory is about to take place, and that's going to involve me dying and departing. And you need to get ready for that. 
And the first thing that he tells them as he's on his proverbial deathbed, or the first thing he tells them before he steps out of the door with his luggage is love one another, but in a new way. I don't want to skip the context here, but the emphasis indeed is 34 and 35. But, but notice how he frames it. Look at verse 31. When he had gone out, that is Judas. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, and this is confusing. Um, let's go ahead and admit it. We're going to own it. The next few sentences are confusing, so do your best. Now is the Son of Man glorified. All right, let's pause. <laughs> Son of Man Jesus is referring to himself, and let's do a quick review from the Gospel of John. What does glorified mean? Glorified means basically now is the Son of Man going to shine. It's going to be his time to shine. Now, when is now? What is he talking about? Now that Judas has left, now that my death and departure are a done deal, now that the gears have been set into motion, the crank has been turned on the mousetrap, if you will. Do you remember that game? And then all the little mechanics are now taking place. He's saying, all right, it's in motion. Now, in light of what's about to happen, in light of the death that I'm about to die, the departure that I'm about to do, the Son of Man is glorified, and God, the Father, is glorified in Him, the Son. So, the Son will be glorified. He's going to shine in this death. And guess what? The Father is going to shine in this death as well through the Son. And then verse 32, if God the Father, I'm going to just do that for clarity, is glorified in Him, the Son, God will also glorify Him in Himself. <laughs> like, wow, there's a lot of like, mutual glorifying going on. And then it adds, and glorify Him at once. Here's the point, friends. God is about to look really, really good. The Son's going to make the Father look good in His death. The Father's going to make the Son look good in His death. God's going to shine. And it's going to demand something. When He shines in this way, it's going to demand something, verse 33, and that is a departure. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is saying, I'm about to do something unique. And you guys have followed me around for your entire uh, like adult ministry. For these last three years, you have been with me, and now this will no longer be possible. And if you want to identify with me, if you want to show your allegiance to me in light of my absence, there's going to be a new way to do that. A qualitatively new way to do that. Way to do that. And so what is so new about the new commandment? That's the question we're asking today. And then we can examine ourselves in light of that. He clarifies the love command in light of his absence, and he does it in two ways. A new how and a new who. A new how, how you love. A new who, who you love. A new how. Notice what he said, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
Now, what was, what was the old command? What was the one that you've heard before? The one from uh, Leviticus. The one that Jesus said is part and parcel of the great commandment. It, the first one being, love God with all you got. That's my paraphrase. And then the second, love... Uh, that, was, that was good. It was just a little scattered. But let's try it again, everybody out loud. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's important for you to remember that because if we're going to do the can you spot the difference, we need to be like have a really clear picture in our mind of this, this old commandment, and then we need a really clear, clear picture of the new one. So the, the standard, the how of, of the, the old command to love horizontally was to love like what? It says love your neighbor as yourself. The standard for love is you love people like, like you're loved. It's the, uh, the old school golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? Jesus said that. By the way, that came from Jesus. That was not your mama. That's Jesus. He's the one that said that. But here, he doesn't say that. He says love as I have loved you. Now there's a new standard for love. It's no longer, hey, if, if, if you would do it for yourself, if this is the way that you would naturally care for your own body, mind, and soul, this is the way that you would care for other people's body, mind, and souls. Now you're going to love people in the way that Christ has loved you. And I was even talking with some family members this week about that. I'm like, I said, guys, I am really intimidated by trying to explain how Christ has loved us. Like, how, how, do, you, how do you even do that? Like, without imposing your own definition on it. You know, like, as soon as I say anything beyond love, like, I feel like I'm filling in the blanks with what I want to say and maybe not necessarily what the text says. What is the author trying to say love is? Well, I'm just going to stick it with the text, all right? Like, just to stay in the context of what we've got here. So far, Jesus has demonstrated love to them in this very room by doing what? By washing their feet. And what did he say about that? He said, hey, um, I'm doing something really special here that you're going to recognize in a little while. You're not going to get it yet. But it would become clear to all who were reading, like what he was doing in that moment was actually a picture of his sacrificial death to come. I mean, he like took off his outer robe. He got down on his knees. Like he did the dirty job of washing their feet so that they may be clean. And he's saying, hey, heads up, this is about something bigger. And by the way, I want you to do this bigger thing for all, uh, for, for everyone. And they would be thinking about that for years to come, and it would become really obvious really soon that Jesus did indeed do something even bigger than getting down on his hands and knees and washing their feet. But he would actually divest himself of his own prerogatives, of his own glory, of his own privilege, and he would put himself in the lowest position by actually making himself dirty so that they might be clean. 2 Corinthians 5.21, you remember that passage? Where... It's just so clear. It says, He who knew no sin, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Like that's what Christ was doing. It was a a substitution. He was slaving himself out for our salvation. He was putting himself down so that we would be lifted up. He would satisfy fully God's wrath so that we could go free. 
And he's saying, love one another as I have loved you. Serve one another as I have served you. When we talk about this new standard of love, it could really be simplified uh, into two facets. There's, There's two facets of this new standard of love. And if you're, you're taking those and you want to capture this, I think the two strands that we'll see most consistently, not only in this text, but through the whole Bible, would be self-sacrifice and spiritual good. Self-sacrifice and spiritual good. What makes Jesus' love for us different than just our love for ourselves? The love of God in Christ is marked by self-sacrifice and spiritual good. You know that the word that's often used here is a special one in the Greek language. There are multiple texts of Scripture in which this is also used. And I want to read you a few of them. You you could turn there, but I would trust you to trust me. Um, Just listen, because this exercise is important. I'm going to read for you. Four very quick Bible verses that use the same Greek word for love, and I want to see if you can discern what makes this particular Greek word for love so unique. Are you ready? First one's so obvious. You don't even need to look at a Bible. Ready? John 3.16. For God so loved, that's the special Greek word, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you see the sacrifice in that? He gave. Do you see the spiritual good? Should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, Let me give you another one. Very famous. Uh, Many don't even need to turn here. Romans 5.8. But God showed or proved His love toward us. That's the special Greek word for love that's here. God showed His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the verse continues to talk about our being reconciled to God. Uh, Sacrifice? You see sacrifice in there? Yeah. God showed and proved His love to us in that He gave Himself for us. And then, the spiritual good? We've been reconciled to God. Let me give you two more. Ephesians 5, 25-27. Their husbands are commanded to love their wives, same word, love their wives, as Christ loved the church. And then he defines that love. What did Christ do for the church? Well, he loved it by giving himself up for it, sacrifice, washing her with the water of the word. Spiritual good. Are you seeing it? Okay, we're three verses in. I mean, we're, we're, we've got sacrifice, we've got spiritual love. I mean, if I was making it up, you would think that the, the thing would break down by now. Let's just try one more and see where this goes. First uh, John chapter four, verses nine through 11. First John four, nine through 11. I don't have that one memorized, unfortunately, so I'm going to turn. First John four, nine through 11. We just read it earlier. Just listen carefully again for how this special word for love is used. It says, In this the love of God was manifest. There's that special word again among us. That God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, same word. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, the satisfaction for our sins. Satisfying God's wrath. Beloved, if if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
Uh, what is the, the sacrificial element in this? God sent His Son to satisfy wrath. Like, that's a sacrifice. Like, Jesus would take on the punishment. There's sacrifice there, but there's spiritual good there. It's that we might live. It was for our sins. This stands in contrast. That, you know, sometimes we need something to compare to. You're like, all right, special Greek word for love. It seems to be sacrifice. It seems to be uh, this notation of spiritual good. Maybe. How does it compare to the other words? Well, I actually use the other words for a second. The, the second most, or excuse me, the most popular Greek word for love in that particular culture and society was eros. And I get it. Valentine's Day is coming up. And a bunch of you are prudish and thinking, eros, bad word, bad, bad, bad. Eros is not a bad word. Just, I need to say this for a moment. It'll make a few of you uncomfortable. The word erotic is not a bad word. You understand that God made sexual desire. And He intended for it to be fulfilled in the covenant of marriage. Eros, in the Greek, is not necessarily a sinful word. Porneia is sinful. (laughs) Eros is just a love based on desire. Uh, Particularly the desire of one perceived as worthy. Uh, One who wins the affections. It regularly, indeed, gets a bad rap. But like when you look at the ways that it's used in in other uh, places, even in the Bible, but often outside the Bible... It's just, it can be a sacrificial love. There, there are instances in which eros is used to describe uh, a hero who sacrifices himself for a people, a heroine who sacrifices herself for uh, the hero. But listen to this. In every case, even though there's sacrifice involved, the person who is being sacrificed for is worthy. What makes our word so unique is it doesn't take into account the worthiness of the recipient. It's inferior. Bruce Milne in his book, The Meaning of Fellowship, which is worth its weight in gold. It's not in in print anymore. Um, If somebody would like to do me a pastoral favor, you will hunt down the publisher and get us the rights to publish this book again. It's that helpful. You can find it on Amazon for like 70 bucks, maybe. So helpful. He describes Christian love in this, and he contrasts it with Eros, and he says, there is one invariable element in Eros. It was a love for the worthy. The object of love was always worthy of the sacrifice made. In Jesus Christ, however, men encountered a different kind of love. Here was a love for the unworthy, a love that stooped to the worthless and loved those in themselves who had no right to it. Friends, this is not this, this self-sacrifice, this spiritual good. This isn't just about uh, you doing whatever you feel like. It is laying it down for the good of those who are also in Christ. And guess what? They too are unworthy. It's not eros, nor is it the other two that are really popular back in the day, phileo and storge. I won't spend as much time on those. But phileo, storge, are just love of um, like common relationship, like friend love and family love, or even pet love, which I don't really have. 
but I've got the friend and family one. You know, this mutual, like, hey, we're on the same page. You're of my kin. We share the last name. You know, like, there's, there's a certain love that family has. And, but they're worthy because they share your last name or they share, you know, your DNA. The, the dog or whatever it is that you guys love, my family loves. It also like, is, has a warm spot in their hearts because they think that it's cute or whatever. But the love that's being described here, there's no worthiness involved at all. It's indeed a sacrifice to express this kind of love. The word, of course, is Agape. And the implications of this are profound. And here we find ourselves, friends, let's just be realistic for a moment, far behind the standard of Scripture. If the love that Jesus is calling us for in the new command is, a, is, is new and standard, like it's, it's a new how, let me try to point out some ways in which we, we maybe, maybe, I don't know, I don't know every person in the room, but where I would assume that we would be missing the mark. Uh, first, in this sacrificial element, it's, this kind of love is not convenient but committed. It's not convenient but committed. Like, an eros kind of love just says, you know, I feel like doing this right now, and you do it. Um, agape love doesn't feel like doing it at all. It just lays itself down, like, Death to the desire. Let me do what's best for the other person. I had a, a great talk with uh, w- one of our newer church members just this past Wednesday. I don't want to embarrass him, but I, I appreciated his candor when he said, I remember sitting back in the uh, Life at Faith class that you guys do, and you were talking about a church covenant. Uh, and I just thought, in light of the church background that I've been in, that was a really strange thing. We felt a little uncomfortable with that. The idea that people would clarify, you know, this level of commitment with one another so specifically. He said, but now we get it. We understand it. We're glad we do it. (laughs) Um, I I didn't grow up in an environment where people tried to clearly spell out the commitment that was being made to one another either. But having now been the beneficiary of that type of love and care, man, I'm so glad it's there. Because frankly, you all know what it's like to get the warm fuzzies when you meet a new group of people and then they disappoint you. And your alternatives are to push through and continue to love them anyway or to get out of Dodge. And how miserable is the existence of the church-hopping Christian where they never actually get to go deep with anyone because it's a love of convenience, not a love of commitment. What Christ is calling us to here is the former. And and, and a convenient love, I mean a committed love, excuse me, as opposed to a convenient love, it it shows up and here's an area where I think we would do well. It it speaks out from time to time. You know, it isn't just, you know, you keep showing up and keep trying to love the same people. Sometimes, friends, and I, I need to say this, I'm preaching to myself mainly. Sometimes it's willing to actually do the hard things that would make you seem less desirable in the other person's eyes. Example. It's easy to show love to people by saying, you're the, you're the best father I've ever met. Or I just love the way that you're shepherding your wife. <laughs> you know, that's, that's encouragement. 
You know what the harder one is? To say, hey, I love you so much, but I've noticed something in the way that you seem to be caring for your family that doesn't seem to be lining up with the example that Scripture calls. And You have said the hard conversation, the, the rebuke. Uh, Proverbs says it this way, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Sometimes, friends, real love speaks out. Not in some self-righteous way. I'm not calling. Look, if you walk out of here today and you just start being like, you know, this hypercritical individual, you've missed the point of the text. All I'm saying is, committed love does hard things. It doesn't just do the easy things. Like it's it's willing to like make some some sacrifices, even if it makes you not look as good. I mean, this is a real deal. <laughs> it's not natural, but spiritual. That's the second aspect. It's, I'm saying it's not convenient, but committed. It's not natural, but spiritual. Uh, friends, we're not just buddies with one another. It's not like, oh, you work in the real estate industry too? We've got a lot in common. Or what? You like the Philadelphia Eagles too? I don't know, Mark. I think you were alone on that, man. <laughs> Somebody be Mark's friend, please. And pull for his team. But whatever it is, oh, you like football too? Let's hang out. That's not Christian love. That's phileo. And it's great. I love phileo kind of love. I love hanging out with people who like to do all the same stuff I do and read the books I read and watch the movies I watch and go, go do that. I mean, that's awesome, but that is not what this is talking about. If you're coming into a church like this and you're looking for that, you're looking for the wrong thing. You can find that anywhere. What we need is something that is rooted in our relationship with Jesus. It is not just your natural associations only. You don't just look for buddies. You look for brothers. What's the difference between a buddy and a brother? Well, with a brother, you've got to make it work. you just got to make it work. <laughs> they ain't going anywhere. I mean, like maybe as adults, brothers grow strange, but when they're in the same house, sorry boys, I'm going to just warn you over here, like... You're not going anywhere. You've got to make it work. And that's the same thing that I would say to the brothers and sisters in Christ here. Until God providentially puts you somewhere else for gospel advance, you've got to make it work. And avoiding individuals, even within the fellowship, it's not going to work. He says, if you think that even somebody has something against you, you can't even worship until you make it right with that individual. Like, this is the kind of love that he's calling for here. It is, it, is, it is that which is sacrificial, but it is also, friends, spiritual. It, it keeps in mind, it's the sacrifice for the spiritual good of another, the highest good of another. It would be easy to just to, uh, care for their physical needs and be like, oh, well, they're doing fine financially, therefore all is well. It could involve the financial, it could involve the emotional, but it is a spiritual good. Christ died not just to make our lives more comfortable, but to make them more Christ-like. And we also should be concerned about the Christ-likeness of one another. In fact, revisiting that covenant thing. It is a human tool that has only been around for about 400 years. It is not biblical. I had a talk with one brother who wanted to join the church. He said he didn't feel comfortable with the term covenant. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Uh, do you feel comfortable loving one another and uh, loving other believers in this way, even if we don't use the word covenant? He's like, yeah. Eventually, he did agree to the word covenant. But the point is, 
I don't care about the document. <laughs> I care about what it says. And you know what all it is? It's an ethical summary of everything we believe the Bible teaches we should be doing to one another. If you were to go to a church and say, hey, what do you guys believe? And they're like, well, it's the Bible. You'd be like, okay, well, that's great. I believe the Bible too, but what do you really believe? Do you have like a doctrinal statement? You'd be expecting them to have summarized that in some way, right? A covenant is the ethical counterpart of a doctrinal statement. Say, so, oh, this is how you anticipate that we're going to behave with one another? Okay, great. I tried to just go through our covenant, which I think is awful verbose, and like make it like a little more clear and easy. Like, what is it that we're trying to do? We're sacrificing unto what end? Well, here's some of the things that we've agreed to do together as a church. Uh, teaching and upholding the truth for one another. You know what? We don't let error go, Right? Like somebody starts saying something heretical or somebody is reading a book that would do them spiritual harm, uh, we've committed to actually say, hey, you probably shouldn't be reading that. Here's why. Caring for and correcting one another. Caring for. When people are emotionally down, it's moving into their space, being with them, the ministry of presence. But it's not just caring for, it's also correcting. That, that's for their spiritual good. Showing up for each other. Just being here in the gathering together. Man, that is encouraging where people see you. They know you. Praying for each other. Praying through the directory. Praying for individuals. If we took that seriously, if you just prayed for the names of the other members here, it would revolutionize your experience and expenditure of love in this place because it orients you around their spiritual needs. Owning gospel advance and holy living, doing your own part, rejoicing and weeping with each other. Rejoicing with each other and weeping with each other. Like some of us are so busy, we can't even show up to a birthday party. You know what? Showing up to a party is actually rejoicing with one another, and the opposite's also true. Showing up to a funeral is weeping with one another. These are things that are, that are expressions of spiritual good giving time and resources for gospel advance and for one another, tangible acts of service. So my point is, friends, it's sacrificial. It's going to cost us something. We've got to lay down our lives. And in another way, it's also spiritual. It's not just, hey, we're here, but we care about people's souls. It isn't just the pastor that cares about the soul. We care about each other's souls. I read it in a business book. You won't believe it. I read it in a business book, but I think the guy was a Christian. I can't say for sure, but I think he was. Because he defined love this way. Fighting for another's highest good. Fighting, sacrifice, another's highest good. I would say that would be their eternal soul. That's what Jesus is calling us to. What, what makes the new commandment new? You're looking at the two pictures. In the one picture you have, love your neighbor as yourself. In the other picture you have, Love one another as I have loved you. We've seen the first difference. It is the how. The how. Not as yourself, but as Christ has loved you. But now let's notice the second difference. The who. The who. What makes the new commandment new? There's a second thing, and it is the object of that love. The, the commandment to love one another, to love your neighbor, excuse me, is not nullified by any means. Like, we are still supposed to love everybody that God places in our path. Surprise, surprise, it's there. 
But within that grouping of everybody else, there is a, now, because of this command, a special group that gets the priority of your attention. And that is other Christians. You say, wow, that sounds kind of narrow. That sounds kind of sectarian. Is that really what Jesus was saying? Well, I would uh, have you consider this from three angles. One, when does Jesus give this command? When Judas left the room. He doesn't give, he doesn't even begin the farewell discourse until Judas is gone. Secondly, three different times he says, love one another as I have loved you. He doesn't say love your neighbor. He's specifically talking about the 11 who are still sitting around the table. Love one another as I have loved you. That's reason two, I would believe, that it's talking about believers. And then here's reason three. He defines the one another as my disciples. Verse 35. He says, by this will all men know that you were my disciples, my followers. The followers of Jesus have a special love for one another. And I know that that could sound weird or strange for some, but really, friends, it's not that far off. I'm getting old. I'm getting old because certain things leave my mind. And then all of a sudden they just rush back in, and I'm like, where did that come from? I forgot about that. When I was a teenager, we tried to adopt a young girl in our family. It was a foster. Look, I'm sorry, friends. Some of you have been dealing with foster and adoption, and I'm acting like I have no clue what you're going through, and I forgot. We did this for a year. Anyway, her name was Bridget. She was a beautiful um, little girl, troubled past, of course. And Anyway, she, she was in our home, and it was such an odd experience for me because I felt like we were being watched. You know, like she... She is like hyper aware of how love is shown in a home, and like right now, we're, we're being looked at under great scrutiny. And you know what the, the natural thing to do, especially for the first couple of weeks, is just to show love to Bridget. Like, oh, we want to show love to Bridget. But it was putting a big stress on the home. And what I didn't realize until further reflection is Bridget wasn't all that concerned about the love that we directly showed her. She was more interested in the love that we showed to one another because that showed her what kind of family she would be a part of. Friends, the the love that you have for one another is a very special apologetic. It is a priority in the command to love everyone. We must first love those who are closest to us. And and what I want to make very clear for us, just I'm trying to shepherd well here. I don't don't want to be mean. But can we please understand that what Jesus had in mind was real people? Like real real believers. Not just all Christians everywhere in some like nebulous cloud, but like the actual believers that God has placed in your life. You know the old uh, poem. To dwell above with the saints in love, oh, that will be glory. To dwell below with the saints we know, that's a different story. We've got to be careful, friends, that in a context like this, that we don't say, check, I got it, I love Christians. Generally. 
but I don't really like the people here. (laughs) How many of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? You've heard that name before. About half of you. He was pastor uh, in, in Germany, Christian pastor in Germany during the Third Reich. So we're talking 30s, 40s. And in that, uh, Hitler had actually called for all the Christians to come together uh, as like a state church kind of thing. Kind of like China does with the three self-church. Uh, but there was a group that said they don't want to be under the thumb of the empire. Uh, and the, they were kind of like splinter selling it. And they were doing their own house church. And so they were under great pressure from uh, the government, and because of that, it produced a very tight community. You know what it's like when you're under fire. And so, through this, um, Bonhoeffer in particular would, would speak out much uh, against uh, Hitler and the Reich, even at one point leading him uh, to publicly denounce Hitler on the radio, which got him thrown into jail. At that point, he's now in jail with other these house church pastors, and he describes it as one of the most tight moments of Christian community in his life. And he would use that church-like experience in jail to write. They would let him write. And he'd write a book that uh, today has been published and read by millions, Life Together. It's a book on fellowship and relationship in the local church. I commend it to you. So he's like this practitioner of what real Christian community and relationships like. And he gives this warning in the first chapter that I think is appropriate for us all, where he says, one of the most dangerous things, one of the biggest threats for true Christian community is a wish dream. That's what he calls a wish dream where people begin to have this idea of what the community should look like and begin to pursue the ideal, but not express it with the individuals that God has already placed around them. Let me just read you a few lines here, just a few, as a warning for all of us. He says, God's grace will shatter such wish dreams for those of us who want the community to be a certain way. He says, only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment, such disappointment, with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Only that kind of fellowship begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Can I communicate this for a second? Like what he's saying is, hey, some people have this like idea of how everybody in the church is going to love and care for them and for one another. And they get into the church and guess what they realize? It's a bunch of sinners. And they don't like that dude's plan for Christian community. They have a different plan for Christian community. And all of a sudden you find yourself absolutely frustrated. Like, what did I sign up for here? Bonhoeffer says, that's a blessing. When you get to that point, you can really start loving one another well because now you're past the dream and into the reality of broken sinners who need Jesus. 
It's, it's a pastoral maxim as well. No, no, no surprise. You've been there, for those of you who are married. Honeymoon phase, right? And then what, what we're really writing for pastorally is when they get in their first big fight. Because it's only after that that we get to talk about the love that we were trying to tell them about and all the premarital, but they had no clue what we were talking about. Some of you friends here need to go ahead and get over with. Just tell somebody what you think. Let's get the big fight out of the way, and then let's love one another through it. Be gone with the wish dreams. Let's care about the sinners that God has placed within our sphere of influence. The ones who take your parking space. The ones who do not speak to you even though you invited them to your house the other day. The one who invites everybody else to their house but does not invite you to their house. I mean, like, you, those, like those sinners. The one who offended you. The one who was too harsh. The one who seems a little manipulative. And I mean, like, those sinners, like those people, those are the ones that we love. He says, love one another. I mean, he's looking around the room at 11 guys. I end with this last read from Bonhoeffer. He says, thus the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably valuable because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. When the morning mist of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. Friends, we should be careful. Too often in churches like ours, we want to love a certain kind of believer. Our sort, our kind. And the command is, love all of them. This not only applies to believers in our own church, but may I apply this in one other direction, please? It, it also applies to believers in other churches. Like you, it's kind of easy to, to, to develop the mindset, us for and no more. Like a, we're not accountable for the church down the street. We don't care what's going on over there at First Baptist. We don't care what's going on for, you know, like, there are brothers and sisters too. Like, you realize that we have an obligation not just to these saints, but to, to all saints. Like, it would be very easy for you in your workplace especially to be like, oh, well, he disagrees with me on baptism, and oh, he disagrees with me on the spiritual gifts, and he disagrees, you know, and like start sectioning yourself off from certain individuals who are brothers and sisters in Christ and need your love. Now, listen, I am not an ecumenical. If you don't know what that means, it means someone who thinks everybody everywhere is a Christian. I'm not saying that we treat everybody everywhere like a Christian. But those who have indeed repented of their sin and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And guess what? If they're in some kind of error, you should probably love them enough to help them with it. And I don't mean like send them an email from like your favorite preacher and tell them to listen to it. You know, I'm talking about love, care, enter into, help, converse, dialogue. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we... 
as Christ followers, should love all believers, not just the ones in our fellowship. So this is hard on both ends. Again, it's, it's the saints above paradox. Oh man, they're easy to love. But the saints below, oh man, that's different. And the text applies for us to the saints that are in our community here, in our fellowship, but also the saints that belong to other fellowships. We should be loving and serving them well, sacrificing for them. What makes the new commandment new? There's a new how, and there's a new who. And it's so effective. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you... Pause. I'm going to be a little sarcastic. Just a little bit. It'll be okay. I want to fill in the blank. And I'm going to fill in the blank with stuff that we, self-included, tend to fill the blank in with. And I want you to know that anything that I fill in this blank in the next few moments is in and of itself not bad. But what I want to point out is that what I fill in the blank with is actually not what Jesus says. Okay? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you wear a cross around your neck, vote Republican. Give money to Christian causes. Post it on your social media profile. Decorate your house with Bible verses. Listen to a Christian radio station. Have a library full of Christian books. Get a Christian symbol tattoo. Regularly engage in personal Bible reading and prayer. Say you go to and occasionally visit a church. This is the way that 99% of evangelical Christians in the United States have said, I'm with Jesus. The text says, By this will all men know that you're my disciples. If you have love, one for another. That's the mark. That's the badge. That's the ID. That's what they're looking for. And it's effective. There's this prayer in just a couple chapters. We're going to see it. Listen to what Jesus prays for His church and why He prays it. He says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you hear what Jesus prays before he goes to the cross? That the people would be so connected to God and to one another that everyone would know that you'd sit me. Through church history, this plan has always worked. It's always worked. One of the first times that this was legitimately tested was in the third century, with, by, and it was first noted by this guy named Tertullian. 
He's this church leader, this church father, and he thought that the church had a PR problem, that the Christians were being accused of all kinds of crazy stuff, just like they are today, but worse. They were being accused of incest because they loved one another and they treated one another as brothers and sisters and they kissed one another to greet one another. They were being accused of cannibalism because they were supposedly eating the flesh of this this one who was called Jesus. Like it was just, like it was an absolute freak show to be a Christian. There was nothing positive about it. At least there's like some kind of net positive in our own culture, at least a little bit. Like, oh, he must be a moral individual. That was not the case then. So Tertullian, Christian, writes broadly so that he could defend Christianity. And his number one defense was to write about how uniquely the Christians love one another. To see how they love one another. And how the rest of the world eats one another like dogs. You ever heard that phrase, dog eat dog world? Not so in Christ's church. His apologetic was look and see how we love. Several years later, I've, it's uh, 1620. It's the starving time, if you know that period from history. William Bradford, Plymouth Plantation. You get what I'm laying down? Okay. It's a tough time. And in it, Bradford writes in his, in his journal about the experience of everybody literally starving to death. And he noted how the Christians were like laying it out there with one another, like entering the houses of other brothers and sisters who were diseased and starved. And the non-Christians at that time really did get savage. Like they were just only concerned about themselves. And the same testimony came from one of the men who were eventually converted. Do you know what he said? He said, I saw how we let one another lie and die like dogs. Interesting, he still used that phrase. Lie and die like dogs, but I see how they loved one another. Do you ever long, maybe it's just me, I think it's a lot of us. Do you ever long for the uh, evangelistic opportunity like to actually be a downhill, not an uphill effort? Like, you know, do you ever feel like you're like creating opportunities? Like, man, I'm trying to open this door. You know, I'm like, I'm trying to get into this relational space. You know, it's like gravity is pushing us down. You know, we're trying to heave up evangelism and it's like it's, it's pushing us back down. You know what reverses the gravity? Wouldn't you like it if people were like actually coming to you saying, I don't know what you've got, but I want it. Would anybody like to have that conversation this week? (laughs) Yes. This is what does it. There's a compelling community. It draws people in. You love sacrificially and specifically other Christians around you. You lay your life out for them. You keep showing up for them, not only on Sundays, but other times through the week, just fighting for their highest good. People see that. They know that. And Jesus himself says, there's your apologetic strategy. You want to attract? You don't need smoke machines. You don't need colored lighting. You don't need a louder band. You don't need a great marketing program. The people loving one another is the marketing program. This is the vision that Jesus has for His church. And so what what does this practically mean for us? I, I, I could do this in the form of command or I could do this in the form of encouragement. I choose to encourage. 
Instead of telling you, church, all the ways that I think you could be doing this where you're not, let me encourage you in ways that you already are. And if you're not in Christ, if you're not a part of a gospel-preaching church, may you take this as instructive for what it would look like for you to be a part. So I'm encouraging the saints. I'm instructing those who are not. You ready? Real quick, four things, we're done. The first thing I want to encourage you in, saints, is that you have signed on. You have signed on. You've made it clear that you've confessed Christ and you want to walk with Him in the company of His people. I'm grateful for that. It is important that you identify with the head and His body. And so many of you have done that. You've made it clear that you want to love Jesus and you want to love Him by loving the people that are here. If you're not in Christ, you're not a part of His church, I would encourage you, friends, to, as 1 John would say in chapter 4, believe in Him and love the brethren. Believe in Him first. That's what matters. Receive the love that He's offered in Christ. And if you have received that, relay that to others who are gathering representing Jesus as well. It's weird to say, it's not even weird, it's impossible to say that you have a relationship with God, 1 John 4, and not have a relation, God the Father, and not have a relationship with His children. He says, how can you say that you love God, whom you have not seen, if you do not love your brother, whom you have seen? Anyway, encouragement to you. Thank you for signing on, for making it clear, confessing Christ and owning this relationship with His people. If you need to trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you don't even know what we're talking about, you want to know what it is to be part of the family of God, talk to me or someone else after. Second thing I want to encourage you in. Not only have you signed on, uh, but you have also shown up. It's one thing to sign up and say, hey, I'm here. (laughs) It's something else to keep showing up every week, every week, every week. Uh, Friends, I know it sometimes can be overwhelming when we're talking about service opportunities. Look, there's a lot. There's a lot that needs to be done here, can be done here. But the most fundamental opportunity you have to serve is to show up. And can I just give you an analogy? You know, the greatest difficulty of some people getting started exercising is they make it too big. They're like, I'm going to do P90X seven days a week. (laughs) And they can't even make it through the fitness challenge. You know, like... You want to start exercising? Just get in the habit of showing up. Just show up. Because once you get there, then things begin to happen. God knows that when you show up, stuff happens. You guys show up well. This is not the church. I praise God for this. This is not the church that has 280 members, or excuse me, 2,800 members, and only 280 show up. It's the other way around. There's 280 members, and then there's a bunch of other people that I'm happy to have here. But, like, you guys are here, and that's awesome. Show up. Third, I want to encourage you for leaning in. You don't just show up, you lean in. Fred, I heard it when you prayed this morning. It was really helpful for my soul. You were praying Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 that says that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which is just a participle. The verb is, let us consider how to stir one another to good works. He brought out in his prayer that we should be considering, like thinking, how can we help other people do better spiritually? 
What I love about this congregation is that people are not only showing up, but they're leaning in. They're thinking intentionally about how can I best serve and contribute in the body. And guess what, friends? There are a whole host of other needs. In fact, I was supposed to make an announcement today about some specific serving opportunities, and I never got the sheet of paper. (laughs) But I know as soon as we mention those, that they're going to be met. Like, this is something that is good, that is happening here. You're not only showing up, you're leaning in. And then here's the last one that I want to commend you for or instruct if you so need it. Hold out. Hold out. Just push through the honeymoon phase, friends. I don't, promise is a strong word. Let me use the word plan. You need a plan for disappointment here. You need a plan to be disappointed with me. You need a plan to be disappointed with the elders. You need a plan to be disappointed with the other saints around you. Let me just go ahead and tell you straight up, we're not totally like Jesus yet. And you know what love would do? Hold out. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. It holds out. If by some reason of conviction of conscience you need to be at another church, I understand that. But if it's just relational tension, praise God. The Spirit will fix it. All will be well. Friends, this is such a simple command. It's new. It's new. It's different. It's effective. Let's praise God together for the privilege that we have of putting Him on display and our love for one another. I'll pray, and then we'll sing a song of thanksgiving. Father, we rejoice in your love in Christ. <laughs> it, is, it is beautiful. It is good. It is sweet. And it spreads. It spreads through us to others, and I pray that that would continue here. Thank you for the ways it has. I recognize that there are some here today who may not know that love. They may not know that they're in the family of God. I pray that they would receive that love today, that they would know that joy, that they would join us in this privilege of representing our good, gracious, kind, loving King. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.